0: Psalm 133, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls in the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. As many of you guys know, the Bible is not one book. It's made up of actually 66 different books, all different genres, written by a bunch of different authors. And uh, last series that we went through was in Exodus, which is a historical book. And that basically outlines real events that happened in history that we have archaeological proof for. And then in addition, in Exodus, there was law as well, where God declared different things he wanted his people to to listen to and to follow, and today we're going to jump into a psalm, which is a song, basically, and so it's poetry, and in poetry, and I say this all because I'm an English teacher by trade, and so today I'm actually going to give you guys a poetry lesson, okay? Don't worry, the the test is not going to be too hard. I'm sure you guys will pass it, but today as we look into this psalm, There's a lot of meaning packed in such a small amount of words, okay? So even though there's only three verses, it's a really wonderful and rich psalm that talks about the community of believers. It talks about the people of God. So we're going to get into that in just a moment. Before we do, though, let me give you a little bit of introduction into who I am. I know many of you guys had the chance to to meet me and get to know me, but just so you guys are aware of kind of who I am and, and my story, I wanted to give you guys that. Um, So first thing is that I'm married to a beautiful woman sitting back there named Mallory. She's not in the back. Yep. She's not in the back because she's hiding. But normally, if you see me, I'm going to be in the back in the booth because we have been serving and helping out at this church um, really for quite a long time since about late 2017 when Pastor Daniel was being called by members of this church to come up here. We were helping sort of from from behind the scenes. And then in January of 2018, when we launched the church, I was um, able to come up and and be a part of the church at that time. And I was kind of helping from behind the scenes. And then after a few months, we uh, became members of the church. So we've been members since about July of 2018. That's a little more than a year. And um, and in that time, I've seen God do some amazing things in, in people in this community and seeing it grow and thrive. And it's really been a joy for me to be a part of. Um, I go, I am connected to Pastor Daniel and to Ryan, who's the worship leader, as you guys know, because we all used to minister together in a young adults ministry in Riverside, at a church called Harvest. And um, in that time, initially what, when I came on um, board there, going there as a member, and then after a number of time coming, I joined a small group, a community group, and I, me and my wife were married for a few years at that point, and there was a small married couples group there. And after a time, the leaders ended up leaving. And so we were fortunate enough to take over leadership of that small group. And then one thing led to another. As a volunteer, I was offered to be able to kind of oversee community groups. And it quickly came um, in the forefront of like my, my life and my ministry that small groups and community groups were something that I was very passionate about. And it's something that kind of um, was, was the, the impetus to bring me into ministry and then Fast forward a little bit, a couple years into it, I was offered uh, to work there as an intern pastor, and I served there for a number of years until I came here. So that's just a little bit about my story, and um, kind of a big piece of this is I still live down there in the Inland Empire. A lot of you guys know that, that me and Mallory make the drive with our little five-year-old about three hours, well, in the morning, maybe two and a half hours, three hours going back every Sunday because we believe what God is doing here, and we want to be a part of helping you guys, and obviously, a big part of that is praying and seeing how. God might make a way for us to move and be a part of this community. But in that time that we've been sort of attending, helping from afar, I've realized how much I miss that daily, during-the-week community of being with the people that I'm fellowshipping with, and it's really been something that's been missing, and I know right now it's just like a temporary situation for me, and it's not a normal situation, but it's something that I've been missing And in light of that, I thought, why don't we look at this idea as we're kind of not relaunching, but we're looking at even expanding our small group ministry, and things are are going great there. So I thought we would focus in on this wonderful psalm, which says how good and pleasant it is for family to dwell in unity. I say family because in the Christian community, that is exactly what we are. In Matthew 12, as Jesus was standing up to teach, and he was teaching to a large crowd. It, we read this in Matthew 12:46. It says, While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside, asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? <clears throat> and stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So he's basically making this connection that those people who have put their faith in him And who are doing the will of the Father are the family of God. In even a deeper sense than our physical family, our genetic family, even though we are really connected to them, the family of God has a connection that is much deeper than that. And we see that in Jesus' words. So today, connecting back to this psalm, we're going to look at six things, six principles that we see from this psalm. If you're a note taker, you don't have to write them down right now because we'll go through them one by one. But in this psalm, we see that the church community dwells together, is unified, is precious, is holy, life-giving, and lastly, it's eternal. It's forever. So let's look at these one by one. Point number one, the church community dwells together. Uh, This psalm, if you see in your Bible, it has a little subheading. It says a song of ascent. And most commentators agree that this is basically a psalm that was sung as Jewish pilgrims were making their way to Jerusalem, ascending to the Temple Mount. Okay, So in Jerusalem, where we read about in Exodus, the tabernacle eventually became the temple which is there in Jerusalem. And all of the Jewish people... Um, several times a year, but at least once for Passover and then for Pentecost, would make their way to Jerusalem to worship together, to dwell together in unity. And this is one of the songs that they would sing. You know, it's almost kind of like a road trip song. I feel like we don't do this anymore, but like when I was a kid, my dad was a musician. So in the car, we would like sing a song together as we're sort of driving to somewhere. Um, I don't know. Nowadays, I just feel like people are on their phones the whole time, just looking at their phones, even the drivers, unfortunately. Um, and so we're kinda, we kind of lost that thing. But there would be families that are singing this song, talking about the unity and the joy that it is to dwell with their brethren who are scattered around the ancient Aries and they're meeting for this one time or maybe a couple times a year to dwell in unity. But beyond that, this song represents something uh, larger, has larger implications for the people of God. And we see something that the church, early church experienced. Pastor Daniel actually touched on this last week a little bit. And it was when the people of God were, joined, we're going to Jerusalem during the end of Jesus's life. Basically, he was ministering for several years, healing people, and they were hearing all this crazy stuff that people were coming back from the dead, that people were getting healed, and huge, people, huge masses of people were following this guy named Jesus who was claiming to be the Messiah. And then eventually, most of these people thought that he was a heretic, and they, they, they sentenced him to die on a cross and then three, three days later, miraculously, they hear stories about him coming back to life. And this, all this is kind of bubbling under the surface. And they're as they're making their way to Jerusalem, singing this psalm, possibly. And when they get there, after that, they have the, the uh, celebration of Pentecost. And Peter, after the Holy Spirit descended upon them, this is in Acts chapter 2, he gets up and he preaches to the thousands that are gathered there from all over the place. And it says in 2.41, those who received his words were baptized And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So we see thousands of people during this time of Jesus' life who have come and they heard Peter preach. And they're completely changed their worldview. They're basically denying Judaism. And they're saying, actually, Jesus was not a heretic. He was the Messiah. We want to listen to him. We want to see what he has to say. And so this crazy thing happened there in Acts 2 just just. praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so in this, we see this kind of revolutionary thing that is taking place where these people are coming together and and they're dwelling together in in kind of the most um, sincere sense. They're selling all their goods, they're joining forces together, and they're saying we can't go back to our homes because at our homes, there are people who don't follow Christ, and we need to foster our faith together and join, sort of join forces. And they literally dwell together there and sort of transformed their entire life. This is the foundation of the church community that was first built. And they had committed to dwelling together. And let me just say, this does not mean that sort of this is... A normative for us, we shouldn 't nowadays sort of sell our things, join forces, build a commune, become quasi communists or something that 's not necessarily what this text is getting at, but what it is saying is that these people had to be in close proximity, they had to dwell together in order to build up and foster. Their face. They couldn't go back and scatter to where they came from because then they would be in a situation where they would not be able to grow together, right? Nowadays, we don't have to do that. Thankfully, we live in a country that um, affords us the opportunity to meet in communities all across really the entire country and really the in t- many, many parts of the world, not all parts, but many parts of the world. And so we don't have to do sort of this thing that they did, but the principle is still in place. And that principle is this, for us to dwell together, simply means that we, living in close proximity to one another, being in continuous fellowship that is built both on faith and friendship. And that's what they were doing. That's the principle that they set forth. And for some of us, that, that might actually mean that we really move in together and live together. I think of the McGinnises, who I know Tyler moved up here, and he was uh, lucky enough to get a job as a nurse. And later, Ryan and Taylor and their girls were they were kind of joined forcing and forces and dwelling together. Same thing happened with, with Kendra. She was looking for a place to live. She was staying with a group of girls in her small group, and uh, her landlord was like, we're going to sell the place. you got to find a place to live. She was in L.A. at the time, and then she came up to visit, and Delma offered for her to come back and stay with her, and now she's here. And so we see that people in the church are dwelling together, but... Um, And that's true for like small groups and different things, but that might not be the case for all of us. For most of us, it probably means just intentionally carving out times throughout our week for coming to small group, to actually have spiritual conversations, to develop our faith and understanding of who God is, and to build important friendships. So we need to be dwelling together. So just as the first, the church when it launched, attempt made every... they could to uh, sort of live together, dwell together, be in close proximity, so we ought to do the same. And so that is the first point, that the church community dwells together. The second thing that we see from this psalm is that the church community is unified. So it's not only that they're dwelling, they're also together and in unity. So we see this in the first verse, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's not about just being near one another, it's about being in unity with one another. And honestly, we could preach an entire sermon about what does that mean to be in unity? Um, And there's a lot that could be said, but one of the most amazing truths about the gospel that I wanna bring up is just that it breaks down everything that separates us. So God has created unity in our lives. Our culture, as much as we talk about social justice and wanting equality, there are still these huge divisions all throughout our culture and secular culture, right? We have divisions in socioeconomic status and race and in gender and all these different divisions that exist throughout our culture. But the gospel puts every person on equal footing. It is said that the ground is level at the foot of the cross and how might how, how might this be, you ask? Well, we have all sinned, right? All of us have gone away from God's purpose in our lives. We've done something against His, His law, and as a result, we're worthy of punishment from Him. That's just the reality of all people. But God, in His grace, provided a way for us equally, no matter where we are, to uh, have faith and trust in the work that Jesus did so we might join this community, Okay, So your race, your ethnicity, your gender, the amount of money you have, none of that is going to earn you credibility in this community. The only thing that will is recognition that you need God and God has offered a way into it. And as I look around even this congregation, it's amazing to see how many different ethnicities we have, how many different you know, places in life we have, genders. Um, socioeconomic status, even in, in a congregation this small to see how we are all connected in a deeper way than you could ever imagine anywhere else. And that could only happen because of the gospel. You know, you think about relationships that you've made in the church and you think, I've, I've thought before, I'm like, I would never have been friends with you <laughs> any other way. We're so different and yet we have this amazing thing in common. And so you have become one of my best Friends and I would have never made that connection had it not have been for the grace of God who has created this unity within us. We read this in Galatians chapter three, starting in verse twenty-seven. The apostle Paul there is talking to the church and he says, "In Christ or in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, you were all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on." Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That is a revolutionary thing to say in the ancient times. For a person to stand up and said, there is no division between Jews and Gentiles. It's a crazy statement to make. It would be similar to if we were in Antebellum South during the times of slavery and said to a white plantation owner, and an African slave who was taken from their home and forced into slavery, that you are equal in the eyes of God, as it should be, and then as time progressed, Christians are the ones who saw that evil and spearheaded toward creating that equality, and we get it from our theology, from this book, from the Bible, and from the gospel that teaches us that we've all been created equal, and we are created in unity by this amazing truth of trusting and believing in Christ. These are powerful distinctions that he's making, and yet... The gospel obliterates them all. We are equal with one another. We are united in that reality, Um, which I think is an amazing thing. It's a revolutionary thing to think about, especially in our day and age, right? We are all one in Christ. And one example where I see this sort of take root is in community groups. If you're in a small group in this community or you have been in the past, you probably see people in that group that are all different, all different backgrounds, different come from different countries, and yet each of their input is not, only, um, is not only like valued, but it's required. Because in a, in a community group, it's not a monologue, it's a dialogue. And not that we're against monologues necessarily. Obviously, Jesus taught that way. We teach that way on Sunday. But in a small group, it's amazing to see how the people who are so diverse come together in unity as they dwell together and share Uh, their feelings, their prayer requests, their insights from the scriptures um, as we do that. So that is what's amazing about the small group, is that we see this unity come to life in, in an amazing way. So the church is dwelling together in unity. And then number three, we see that the church community is precious. Verse two of that psalm says, it is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. So I had to stick a beard verse in here somewhere. I just, I had to stick it in. I asked Daniel if I could just do like a sermon on the holiness of the beard and he said no, unfortunately, so this is what I got to work with. Uh, But it's a wonderful text and it's talking about this oil, the anointing oil and how precious it is that was applied to Aaron. Recently, we got out of the book of Exodus and in that time we looked at what the priesthood was. We looked at Aaron and um, we got to see a little bit about that, but we didn't go into great detail. So, um, I'll get into a little bit of it now. What is this oil that the psalmist is talking about? How does it apply to a, you know, the church community? Because that it in that text that he's saying is the church community. It's precious like that oil. So if you turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 30 in verse 22, we're going to read just a couple verses over there and read about what is this precious oil that he's talking about. So <clears throat> in Exodus, starting in chapter 20, or I'm sorry, in chapter 30, and verse 22, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 50, 500 rather, of cassia, according to the shekels of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer." So in their course of explaining all of the implements of the temple, they get into talking about this anointing oil. And to find a precise like value on this oil is basically impossible at this point, but we can make some estimated guesses as to what maybe this would cost. So... Um, the shekel that Moses is talking about here in the text is not the same as the Roman shekel that was basically the first type of minted coins. That doesn't actually come around until after the Old Testament and before the New Testament in the intertestamental period, when the Romans were, you know, rose to power and took over the world. They created uh, coins for basically the first time. And so that shekel is actually based on this shekel. The shekel that Moses is talking about is actually a a measurement of amount, not a measure of value of money. But if we extrapolate from what that was worth to today's dollars, all these spices combined with a hen or a gallon of olive oil by today's standard is worth about $22,540. So this precious oil Rough estimate, we can say it's worth thousands of dollars, just a single gallon of this oil. So this very rough estimate, it's about, you know, the cost of a month's rent here in Santa Barbara, 22,000. Okay, but the reality is that it is very costly. The oil was incredibly costly. Likewise, the church is incredibly costly, right? We are precious. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 19 through 20, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And in this text, the Apostle Paul is telling the people in Ephesians, or in Ephesus rather, that to stay pure because your body is precious, God has purchased you with a, a an incredibly Um, high price, right? You've been bought with a very costly price. Jesus, God himself, he came down to to the earth and he put on humanity. He added to his divinity humanity. He became a baby and was born and raised and lived as we live, going through hunger and going through being tired and dealing with the pressures and difficulties of this world until eventually, After ministering to people and loving people and showing them the truth of who God is, he demonstrated God's love by going up to the cross, giving his life freely as a a sacrifice for those who would trust in him for salvation. And he paid the ultimate price, the highest price you could ever pay by giving his life on the cross. And those of us who see that price and put our faith in him can take advantage of how that amazing reality, right? So the price that was paid so that we could live together, dwell together in unity was no less than the the price of God's life himself. And that should cause us to look across the globe at all Christians and across our own church and seeing how precious each individual in this church is, that God would give so much to save that person and this person, even when you're feeling like you're not really a big fan of that person or this person, guess what? God paid the ultimate price for them just like you. And uh, take that into account. We are a costly and precious people and it costed the life of our Savior and we are immensely grateful for the amazing uh, sacrifice that he gave. So even though we might be frustrated at times, think about that reality of how much it costed just to purchase us from the place we were to where we are now, Uh, thank God for that. The church is precious. It's a precious thing. Uh, The next thing that we see from this holy anointing oil, that it is holy, right? It's costly. It's very precious, but it also indicates the holiness of the high priest and the priesthood. It is a holy oil. We see this continuing in Exodus, starting in verse 31. It says, you shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person. And you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. And so in this, God is declaring that this is a holy oil. It's precious and it's also holy. And the church is holy. Firstly, we are made holy, right? We're made holy through our faith in Christ. And we see this in the amazing verse in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, right? For our sake, he made him who knew no sin. And it's talking about God making Christ who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, the holiness of God. Just as I was mentioning that we become holy when we put our faith in Christ. We did not earn it. There's nothing we could do. And I know that all of us sitting in here today know that there's no way we could be holy on our own. It's only through trusting in the holiness of Christ and in his sacrifice. So we are made holy uh, as the the church, as the people of God. We have become that righteousness of God. Um, But more than that, God is making us holy, right? And that's called sanctification, which is a Christian word that basically means that that we have been made holy with God and we continue to, to... become more holy over the course of our life, as we become more and more like Christ. And that happens in the church community. God has created a way for all of us to become more and more like him, and that's called the church. That's what the church is here to do. So we've been sort of consecrated with that holy anointing oil in our faith in Christ, and we continually go through that process as we join together to uh, walk this journey and become more and more like Jesus. We read this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 through 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, any sin, any any issue, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burden, so fulfill the law of Christ. So we are, and as family, we are called to restore one another gently, right, to keep watching ourselves and to work together to restore all of us to the place where we can reflect Christ the best. So have you guys, you've probably seen like a nature video on YouTube or maybe on Discovery Channel or Animal Planet where they, they show how lions prowl around to take out um, wildebeest, right? Wildebeest, they roam in packs. They're tight. There's tons of them. They roam the savannas and there's sometimes hundreds of them, but lions can pick some off. And the way they do that, they don't just run up there into that huge crowd of 100 wildebeest. They sulk back, they're hiding behind the wheat or whatever, and they slowly work their way in until they find that one wildebeest who's a little bit like, oh, that looks cool, and is kind of straying from the pack, walking away from the group a little bit. And once that wildebeest is sort of in a vulnerable spot away from the pack, the lion pounces. He goes in there or she usually, the lionesses, go in there, tackle that animal, and take it for food. The same is true in the church community. They, um, in First Peter, he talks about how Satan is like a lion who's prowling around waiting to see whom he can devour. And one of the ways, or really the primary way that we safeguard one another, is to stay in the pack, to stay together, to stay safe from sin, to help one another out. And I think too often we're scared maybe we're to be vulnerable with one another to get close to one another maybe someone has hurt you in the past and you sort of shine away from that you're just going to kind of keep you're going to come to church and keep your surface level connection to people and then go home but that's the kind of activity that could get you in a lot of trouble right seclusion and secrecy are always a recipe for disaster it might be easy to to hide and not connect to people but The alternative is far, far worse, right? It's much more dangerous to stay quiet and go off alone than to insulate yourself with stronger and wiser people in the faith. And that's what the community of Christ does for us. The reason we encourage people to be accountable, to let people know what's going on in your life is not to sort of rub your nose in your sins at all. It's to show you that there is a way of escape and to help you get out of it. It's to protect one another. The church is the main line of defense against those attacks from Satan, from sin, that would draw us away from Christ. Um, I read a really good illustration some some time ago where a psychologist was doing testing on some dogs. His name's Dr. Martin Seligman, and he was trying to test something that he called learned helplessness. And there was basically his experiment was that he took dogs and he put them in a cage, and the the cage had a door on it with a little lever so they knew how to get in and out of the cage. They taught them, and so they were able to get in and out. And initially they were getting them, you know, accustomed to these cages, they would put them in there. And then uh, after a time, they introduced a jolt of electricity into this metal cage. So the dog feels this jolt, it's not necessarily gonna hurt him, but it scares them. They go, they open the the gate and they get out. Well, the next time they brought him into the cage, they locked the door. And then the jolt came and the dog tried to escape, but the lever was locked, he couldn't get out. So he's, you know, freaking out obviously, and then he sits down and then a jolt will come later, it tries to get out again. Eventually, during this process, the dog realizes he can't escape, that the door's locked. So as the jolts come, he doesn't even try. He doesn't try to get out of the cage because he has learned basically to be helpless in this time. The, the pain of going through the, the shock, he just sort of normal, normalized to it, it becomes normal for his life. But an interesting thing happens when they introduce a healthy dog who has not had this experience, that has not learned this um, helplessness yet. So there's a cage next to this cage. They introduce a new dog, hasn't experienced this. Um, even though the, the first dog, um, they actually unlocked the gate and opened it, and they jolted him, and the dog still would not exit, even though the gate was open, because he had learned this helplessness. So this new dog who came in next to him in this other cage, He had not learned this process. So when they jolted that dog, quickly the dog got up and escaped. And at that time, even though this other dog had thought, there's no way I can get out, when he sees this healthy dog escape, the social component of the animals realize, okay, he can do it. I'm going to learn from this person who knows how to escape, and then that dog gets out. So I say this because this jolt that happens in our lives is basically what happens with sin. Is sin in our life, in the beginning, we get jolted, maybe we escape um, by God's grace, but the more that we kind of give in to different types of sins, all sins, then we kind of get normalized to it. We don't realize that we can't escape. We get trapped in this thinking that we can't get out of it. But then we see someone else who is healthy, who understands how to overcome it, and we We work alongside them and we follow them out of these situations. And that's similar to how we work in the church, right? Together we can help one another, escape the issues that we're going through, even though we think you might be helpless in a situation. There's no way I'm going to get over this. I just got to deal with it. I'm just going to be numb to it. But there are others in our lives who know the way out. And when we look to them, when they bear our burdens, as Galatians says, we can see a way to escape and get free. And that's how God uses us, one another, to help us become more and more like him, right? We don't want to be like that first dog who was stuck in that cage and just gave into the reality of his life, but rather look to someone who knows how to escape it and follow along. Confessing your sins is not a burden, right? Right? It should be something that's freeing as people hear what you're going through and help you out. We as the church shouldn't be putting burdens on one another. We should be taking them off and sharing those burdens. And I see that happen time and time again. I know you probably have as well in your own life in the small groups that you are a part of. But there's an old saying that a joy shared is doubled and a sorrow shared is half. When you're alone, your victories become meaningless, right? And your difficulties become unbearable. So if you're secluded, the, the times when you're victorious, there's no one there to, to share the joy. And that when you go through something difficult, that's all on you. It's all on your shoulders. You got no one else to lean on and to help you. And this happens too often in the church and it needs to stop. So please avail yourself, connect to someone, connect in a small group and, um, and take that step. When you're surrounded by people who understand the gospel and the grace of God, they'll be able to help you and they'll rejoice with you in, in your victories and they will help you through your times of difficulty. Gospel-centered community is that mechanism that God has created for his church to become more and more like him. Billy Graham famously said, churchgoers go- church are like coals in a fire. When they cling together, they keep the flame aglow. And when they separate, they die out. So have you ever gone camping the fire burns down to coals. When they're close together, man, that is the hottest the fire can be, really. You spread them out a bit, and they're all dying out. So we need to be close with one another. We need to allow one another into our lives so that we can see that progress, and we can get out of those situations that we think we're helpless to get over. Trust me, by God's grace, uh, it's not. Okay, number five, the, community, the church community is life-giving. Going back, looking at Psalm 33, look at the first half of that last verse there. It says, it is the dew of Hermon, which falls on the Mount of Zion. So the it, obviously here, is talking about that fellowship, that community of believers. It is like the dew of Hermon. So what does this mean? Mount Hermon, according to many commentaries and commentators, rather, was known for its very heavy dew. Dew surfaces during the night on foliage, and it signifies that there is life, that it's lush Fruit and vegetables and, and uh, plants are growing. That's when you see the dew. If you ever like had to go out in the morning to like get something from the mailbox or whatever, don't walk on the grass with your socks on. They'll be soaking wet. That is dew. That is just kind of um, on the grass there. That signifies it's a simile, right? English teacher coming out. It's a simile. Something comparing something to something else using like or as. So it's like the dew. It's like this life that is coming. Um, from this Mount Hermon. So what David is saying, the psalmist, he's saying that the community of faith is like this lush, healthy plant life that thrives and grows and bears fruit. Um, So life is kind of the the most important part of our community. A.W. Tozer uh, says this in one of his books, 100 religious persons knit into a unity by careful organization do not constitute a church any more than 11 dead men make a football team. The first requisite or the prerequisite is life always. So we can have a lot of organization. We can have a bunch of full seats. We can have meeting times and membership and all kinds of different things. But if there's not life in that organization, it's not real, basically, is what it's getting at. We need life to be thriving in the community. And we see this take place um, in, in the Bible. We see that one another, we need to be kind of, giving life to each other. And in Ephesians chapter four, the apostle Paul is kind of talking about this unity that we have in the body. And he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may bring grace to those who hear. So this is just one exhortation talking about the way that we interact with one another. Don't let any corrupting talk, but rather give life. Um, I'm not a gardener. Is there any gardeners in here? All right. One. One really excited gardener. I love it. Um, so you may know, but maybe maybe many of you don't. But in a garden, there's fruits and vegetables, obviously, that you're growing. There's such a thing called companion plants. And these are plants that you grow near your garden to help that garden grow, to be lush and to be healthy. Now, the marigold is a flower. It's a golden flower. And it gives off a scent that keeps away invading pests from eating your tomatoes and eating your, your garden. And it also helps to pollinate because bees come around and they fly around. And marigolds, if they're all around your garden, that garden will be lush and growing and it will have life within it. The opposite side of things, you could look at something like the walnut tree. The walnut tree um, has a poison in its roots that it spreads throughout the ground to keep plants away from it. So it poisons things. There isn't life other than the walnut tree itself. That's the only thing that is allowed to grow because it poisons those around it. And so I bring this up because I think that we've all been guilty maybe of being a little bit of a walnut tree at times and maybe spreading poison where we should be like the marigold when we come into the garden that is the church. There's life and there's always encouragement from someone who's a marigold. And uh, I don't know, you could probably think of people in your life and in your mind right now who are those marigolds for you. Uh, the one that I'll point out today is Mr. Bob's story right in the back. He, every time I come, he is my marigold because when I go up to him and I talk to him, I'm immediately just so much happier. I make a long drive to get here and it's a little bit arduous at times. And I go up to him laughing. He's causing, he's making a joke. Even this morning as Diane walked up to say hi, Bob was like, she, she asked, how you doing? He's like, I'm magnificent. All of us would probably be like, oh, I'm good. Yeah, I'm fine not Bob. He said, I'm magnificent. And then we talked about it for a minute. And it's just little things like that, seeing the life that is in the community. By God's grace, if we, if we take that um, exhortation seriously and be like that marigold spreading life and love and happiness versus a walnut tree. And I know that we've all been guilty of this at times, maybe complaining a little bit about this. I mean, the coffee's not very good. Donuts again, really? The bathrooms are weird. Like, we can complain about a bunch of stuff and we've all done it and maybe there's some in here who, who are struggling with that reality and I'm not gonna name names. I promise. But you you know, looking at this, seeing this, that maybe those around you, when you leave a conversation from those people don't feel as good but when you leave a conversation from Bob, I'm definitely feeling happier, and um, I'm always encouraged. And so, I want to be more like that. I hope that we all do. We want to be life giving in our community. That's what this dew on Mount Hermon is it's this lush vegetation that grows and, um, and just helps to see us thrive. And that's what we as the church must embrace. The last thing that we're going to look at is the church community. Is eternal. So the last little part of the psalm says this: For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And so at the end of the psalm, as we're closing it out, we see this little, little reality that he's bringing up. There, where is there? There is the people of God, the church. Wherever God is present, there is eternity. And so he's saying, there, dwelling in unity with the people of God, is where we see life. That never ends. And we see this in Revelation chapter 7, if we skip into the future. Chapters uh, 7, verses 9 through 10 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is a little window into heaven the future when all of the people of God throughout all the ages from every tribe nation tongue the diversity coming together in unity under Christ and we're worshiping our creator who has brought us all together and it's amazing reality that never ends it never ends it is eternal it goes on forever and the sad part is that there are things in the world that will end. There are people who unfortunately won't be with us. If there's something that will motivate us to share this community that we have, to share the reality that we have in Christ, it is that, that we, would, we desire for them to be with us in eternity forever, right? Um, so look around, you guys. Take a second. Glance around. I know everyone hates when preachers do look to your left, look to your right. Guess what? The people in this room... You're not only going to have to deal with them for the rest of your life, you're going to have to deal with them for eternity. So let's get used to one another because we're going to be here for a long time, right? We will forever be together, and this is an amazing thing. Think about the friends that you've made in church, and it doesn't have to be this congregation. No doubt we move all over the place. We've met and we know people from all different churches. All those people, guess what? The friendship you created, it will never come to an end. You're gonna be friends with that person into eternity. Your spouses, your family, your children, your loved ones who have put their faith in Christ, those relationships never have to come to an end. We are an eternal community, and that's something that is an amazing reality to hold on to, we're gonna be together for a very long time. The church community is eternal. And that's something that I am uh, incredibly grateful for. And again, that should be something that would motivate us constantly to tell our neighbors to tell our the people in a workplace that we love we're great friends with them and we wish we would see them forever guess what there's a way to do it share the gospel with them let them know who Jesus is and how they can join and be with you forever and with the rest of the church same is true for those in our families so joining this community like no other right we're a community like no other joining it means that firstly you can be united with that one true God with Jesus who has given his life, as I've mentioned. Putting your faith in him will give you that reality that you're united, united with God. But it's more than that. You're united with a people. You're not just saved from something, saved from your sin, saved from the things that you were going through, the things that were holding you back in life. Yes, you are saved from those things, but you're also saved to something. And that is the mission to be connected to the people of God and to spread the good news of who Jesus is. That's what you're you're saved, not just from something, but to something, and really into something, and that into something is this community or another community like it, the church as a whole. But also, we get to have this new family, right? This new family that dwells together in unity, that is precious in the sight of God, that is holy, helps one another to... Uh, Relay who Christ is more and more in our lives and is life-giving and ultimately it will last forever. So this is a community that I am grateful to be a part of and I know that many of you are. And if there's anyone in here who has not committed to, first of all, putting your faith in Christ, recognizing what he'd done and recognizing how far far short you have fallen and how you need him, that's the first step. After that, it's joining together with a community. Um, If you have not done that, do it today, because this sounds like a community that I would love to be a part of, and I hope that you uh, do. Too. So let's pray. Father God, we are amazed by your love for us, and more than that, we're amazed by your goodness and your gift that you've given us, being bringing us into a family, maybe a family that we've never had before. Maybe we were mistreated Uh, by our own families in our lives, and yet we've come to the church and we've seen the amazing unity in here, the life that is here, the preciousness that you have endowed it with, God. And not only that, that we get to live with you, praise you, and have complete joy for all of eternity as we link arms together with one another. Those who are sitting right here with us, we will get the pleasure, the honor to worship you together in eternity forever for those of us who have put our faith in you, Jesus, who endured so much for us, so much, God. You went to the cross. You gave your life so that we could have life, and that's an amazing reality. And if there's any in here today who don't have that assurance, that don't have the ability or the knowledge that they have put their faith in you, and they won't be able to reap the benefits of the amazing benefits that you have in this church and in all churches around the world, I just ask that you would impress upon their hearts now to make that change. To make that change, Lord. And we, we love you, God. We thank you for this day that you've given us. We pray for this um, for this picnic that's coming up, God, that you would continue to develop life in this community through events like that, God. That as we prepare to head over to the, the campsite or the, um, the park, that you would just help to develop our friendships, help to develop our faith in one another, or in you through one another and to grow more like you through this community. We love you, Lord. We thank you so much for everything that you have done. We give this day and the rest of our lives and all of eternity into your hands now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's worship.